Amen. This is what we believe. If you don't know, that's the uh, essentially the Apostles' Creed uh, put to music. And uh, the, just talking about the things that we believe, that we believe in the triune God. We believe in what the work he's doing. We believe in redemption. We believe in life eternal. And it's just a beautiful picture. Let's pray real quick. Father God, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for so much for the truth that you have shown us. Lord, the fact that we can gather together to worship you is just beyond all. It's just so amazing. And I pray this morning that we would remember that it is a privilege to come into your presence, to worship with other believers, to gather together, to sing songs, to hear your word preached, Lord. I pray that we would continue to remember that good and glorious truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Go ahead and stand or stand up. Nope, nope, don't stand up. Sit down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. I hope everybody's doing great this morning. So we are starting our new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And I am so excited to spend the next long time with you guys in this uh, book. Um, the year before last, we went through the book of John. And I don't know about you, but I had a great time going through and looking at the life of Jesus through John's Gospel. And for the foreseeable future, we are going to be in the book of Luke unless God changes um, what we're going to, the direction we're going. And over the last several weeks, I've been uh, having a blast just studying and reading this beautiful piece of uh, literature that was inspired by our amazing God. Now, in this first sermon, I want to provide us with an overview of Luke's gospel. So think about it this way. We're going to take like a 30,000 foot view of what Luke wrote 2,000 years ago. We are going to dive into the text as well. So if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, but we'll get there in just a minute. What I want us to do this morning is kind of look at some of the themes, some of the stories and the organization of Luke's account I want us to see how through these 24 chapters in Luke, he writes a beautiful portrayal of Jesus as the savior of the world. I want us to stand in awe of Luke's masterful storytelling and his ability to draw us in and make us feel like we're actually witnessing the ministry of Jesus. Now, before we look at Luke's gospel, what I want us to do first is look at Luke himself. Who is this man? And you may be asking me, you may be thinking, Josh, why is this important? Why is it important that we look at who Luke is? Why do we need to know who Luke was as a person? Isn't his gospel account enough? I say, yeah, we could simply go into his gospel and understand what Luke is wanting to show us. We could venture in and pull out the major themes and the points that Luke wants to make. And I would also say to you that knowing about Luke Knowing who this gospel author is helps us to get some more texture and more appreciation for his account. That knowing about who Luke is isn't just an intellectual exercise, but an important understanding of his point of view when it comes to his gospel account. With that being said, who is Luke? Who was Luke? Luke is the author of both the gospel according to Luke, or the gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. Acts is kind of a continuation of the gospel of Luke, meaning that they are best read when they are read together. So if you, once we finish Luke, if you want to go and continue reading through the book of Acts, that would be a great thing. Or if you're just doing your personal Bible study, read Luke and Acts together. A lot of the same themes, a lot of the same notes of history are are tied together in those. Combine these two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, have more content in them than the rest of the New Testament than every other New Testament author. As you read his books, we're going to see that, that he has a lot to say. 
one of the reasons he's one of my favorite gospel authors, since he has a lot to say. No, so we have more letters from Paul, and we have more letters from John, but Luke's writings, just the two books that he penned together, have more content than any other author in the New Testament. He has a gift for communication. He has a large vocabulary. He has a writing style that really just draws the reader in. Now, we, what else do we know about Luke? Well, we know that he was a travel companion with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And we know this because of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you will see in certain sections of that book that we come across what are called the we sections of Acts. These we passages, not we as an excited, but we as in the, the pronoun we. And these we passages are Luke's firsthand accounts of his happenings with Paul. So through his affiliation with Paul, we also learn some more about who Luke is, what his profession was. In Colossians 4.14, we read that Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas sends his greetings. So we learn from, from Paul that Luke was a physician, a doctor, which explains his training, which explains his ability to have a large vocabulary. It explains his education that he was a doctor. It also lends us to understanding why he speaks so much about in his gospel account, the outsider, those who are, um, he's seen so much pain and sorrow and hurt in the world. And he, he focuses in on those people who have seen and felt the pain and sorrow of life. He sees the outsider. He sees those who have cast, been cast aside by the, the community. And he has compassion on them, mostly because he's a doctor. And he wants to heal people. He wants to see people healed. He feels that for those who are viewed as less than or as dredges of society, because of his profession, he has compassion. And Luke highlights these outsiders. So he highlights those who are essentially powerless and saw as less than in the social order of the time. This includes women, children, the sick, the poor, all types of people, the Gentile, now, when Luke speaks about the poor, so just kind of understanding poor, this isn't just those who aren't wealthy, those who don't have wealth. The word for poor there in the Greek has a broader meaning. It, it can uh, address their social status as well, or a different type of ethnic group. Poor can refer to those who had less leprosy or other illnesses. Those who are just on the outside of society can be deemed poor. Those who don't fit into the, the norm of the Jewish structure of society and social order. Now, this is particularly interesting because Luke himself is on the outside of the Jewish society as well. Why is that? Because Luke was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. So traditionally, Jewish people would have been uncomfortable with Luke being around. He would have been untouchable. He would have been seen of, as unworthy of God's love as many of those in those outcast societies would have as well. Now, I know that a lot of the words that I have just said have become buzzwords in our culture and society, right? The poor, the powerless, the outcast. But I want you to know that these categories actually do exist, not for political purposes, but because we live in a broken world. There are those who are outcasts, those who are poor, those who are powerless, right? We cannot l let our political biases blind us to the reality of the brokenness around us. Instead, we need to see these people as individuals, right? We need to interact with them and have compassion on them and love those who would be otherwise cast off. We need to make sure that we don't push people to the side, rather that we embrace people as those made in the image of God. 
We need to see that, that Jesus has compassion on those who are hurting, those who are sick, those who are poor, those who are rejected by their family, those who are rejected by society. And like him, we need to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to them. We need to provide them with both the gospel message to feed their soul and meet their needs by filling their stomach. They are both good and right. And they need to be done in conjunction with each other. So we need to proclaim the gospel and meet needs of the people. That's what Jesus did. It's interesting in the gospel of Luke, one of the things that Jesus is said all over, the, all over and over again, especially in the beginning, is that he went about proclaiming the good news and healing the sick. So he was fixing their soul and fixing their bodies. And we need to be the people that do just like that. And I pray that as we journey through the gospel of Luke, that we become more compassionate, more loving to those who at first glance we would just cast aside, that we wouldn't give the time of day. And honestly, I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you about this compassion, about loving the outsider. As the body of Christ, let us grow in our mercy and our compassion and love for our lost neighbor in the world around us. That's my soapbox for this morning. Now that we've looked at the person of Luke, who Luke is as the physician, like let's look at a few verses of his gospel to kind of get a grasp on his mission and purpose of this gospel message. In Luke chapter one, verse verses one through four, this is what we read. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the world had handed them down to us. So it, it also seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. I love this introduction to Luke's gospel. It's jam packed with a bunch of good information. You can't tell in the English, but I'm told by some uh, Greek scholars that this is a be- one beautifully constructed sentence in Greek. It's just one sentence, all those words that we just read. Now, though we divide it up in English to help us with the flow of reading, in the original language, one sentence is all Luke needed to convey his purpose and mission with his gospel account. And I want to go through point by point and dis- dissect what he wrote so that we can clearly understand what he wants us to understand. So verse one, he says this, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Here, he's going to tell us about the greatest story ever told. You see, in the Holy Bible, we have four gospels, right? Can you recite them with me real quick? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's right. Of these gospel accounts, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels. Right? Synoptic is a compound word that simply means coming from sin, which means together, and optic meaning to see. So the first three Gospels, we see together the ministry of Jesus. They tell a lot of the similar stories in a similar way. And prior to Luke writing this Gospel, he knew that many had undertaken to writing about Jesus. How many? He doesn't say just three. He just says many. We don't really know how many there were. We do know that we have the four and that there may have been more, but through the dedication and direction of the Lord, these four are the ones that he chose to include in the canon of our scripture. Right? Most scholars agree that the, out of the three synoptic gospels, that Luke was most likely the last one written. It was probably written around 60 AD, so roughly 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. It was written, um, it was, and probably he was writing it and compiling it while he was traveling with Paul on Paul's ministry, missionary journey. 
meaning that Luke would have known and heard the stories of Jesus and known about the other accounts recorded by the other gospel authors, and he uses those to help tell the stories in his gospel. Now, you may be asking, why are there four gospels? Why not just one or just two? Why four? Well, that's a good question. Why are there four gospels? Well, each one of the the authors of the gospel were writing about Jesus' life to a specific audience for a specific purpose. These gospels are like holding a diamond in your hand, right? The diamond of the life of Jesus. And as you examine the diamond, you start to turn it in your hand, right? And you turn it in your hand, and you see the complexity and the beauty, beauty and the clarity of the diamond from all different angles, The way the light hits the diamond in one direction is different from the way that it hits it in another. And it highlights the complexity uh, and the beauty of that diamond. So the Gospels are like that. The diamond is the life of Jesus, and they are examining it from different angles and for different purposes. They shine a light on the life and the ministry of Jesus, but in a different aspect and for different purposes. So Matthew was written by a Jewish man for a Jewish audience. And so Matthew focuses on the fulfillment of prophecy and Jesus as king. His focus is on Jesus' fulfillment of the law of Moses. Mark's gospel was written to the Roman church. And you can kind of tell this by the way Mark is written. Mark is very um, fast-paced. He's very action-oriented. You see this word a lot in Mark's gospel. Immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did this. Like, Mark is just, like, quick. He's uh he's just he's like that guy in uh, Mulan. Let's get down to business, right? Um, that's that's what he's like. Now, John was written for the church as a whole and written to demonstrate the divinity of Jesus, so that people will believe the message of Jesus as the Son of God who came. Now, so what about Luke? What does Luke want to convey in his gospel? Luke was writing to a mostly Greek audience. In fact, we're given the name of one of the people that Luke is writing to, or he's writing this account for in verse 3, and that his name is Theophilus. And we'll talk more about Theophilus in a minute, but most likely Theophilus was a wealthy man who funded Luke's gospel and his writing endeavor. Theophilus, Theophilus is a Greek name, and mo- most um, educated Greek people put a high value on wisdom Right, so, so we'll see this. Luke focuses on the grace of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus in his gospel. And how does Luke do this? Well, like I said earlier, Luke focuses on grace through the compassion of Jesus towards others. He includes his teachings that would intrigue and challenge most of the Greek audience to focus on wisdom. The Greek audience that, that Luke is writing to really, really, really like wisdom. I mean, this is where we get philosophers, right? Philosophy comes from the Greek world. So Jesus' ability to confound the wise and the learned in the Gospel of Luke would have really appealed to them. And one of the cool things about Luke's teaching is that though it is considered one of the synoptics, it does vary greatly from both Matthew and Mark. To demonstrate the wisdom of Jesus, Luke includes a ton of parables, especially when compared to the other Gospel. Now, if you're new to the teachings of Jesus, uh, a parable is simply a story that is used to illustrate a lesson. This is a demonstration of Jesus' wisdom throughout Luke's gospel. Some of the more popular parables are found that are only found in Luke include the Good Samaritan, right? Everybody knows the Good Samaritan, and the Prodigal Son. Those two parables are only found in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, there are 18 parables that are in Luke that aren't found in any other gospel. 18 parables. So again, we can see that, that Luke is focused on wisdom in his telling of the story of Jesus. 
So each of the Gospels gives in a unique but unified picture of Jesus. And in order to get the fullest picture of who Jesus is, we need to take a look at all of them. We need to dive in to each one and find their purpose in writing and compiling the stories so that we understand how great and glorious Jesus is. And here's the beautiful thing about having four Gospels. We see that God uses unique individuals to convey his truth to people for all generations. God chose to reveal his son to these, or through these men. He used their personalities, their upbringings, their histories, to provide us with the most beautiful portrait of Jesus. Now, you may have a favorite gospel author, but I will encourage you to read and to study all of them to see just how beautiful Jesus is. So what else does Luke tell us in this opening line of verse 1? That there are just, or these are just stories that are told. These, are, these aren't just stories that are told. They are truth that have been fulfilled among them. Look what he says. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. This is a reference to the Old Testament fulfillment of prophecy. That Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension are a fulfillment to the Old Testament promise of redemption. What also is fulfilled is that the Gentiles, like Luke and like Theophilus, are now invited into the promise of redemption. Luke ends his gospel by talking about this fulfillment on the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, so go all the way to the end of Luke, we see this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, this is Jesus, interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Then if you jump down to verse 44, we read this. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are a witness of these things. Now, speaking of witnesses, let's look at verse two real quick. What does he say? Just as the original witnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. Here we see that Luke and Theophilus have received instruction from eyewitnesses and servants of the word. This means that both Luke and Theophilus are second generation believers. They're not a part of the apostles or the disciple, the original disciples. They are those who have been taught and instructed. They have heard and believed. The Christian faith, our faith, is based on eyewitness testimony. Eyewitness testimony of the ascension and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Based on the reality that these events actually took place in time and in history. And that people talked about these events and told others about these events. We sit here today as beneficiaries of these accounts. Too often we can take for granted the reality of the gospel message. We can neglect to think about the fact that many believers died so that we can hear the message of the gospel. That their lives were traumatically impacted to get the message to us today. Rather than being grateful, we can become entitled, saying, of course the gospel's there. But the reality is, is people put their lives on the line so that we could know the good news of Jesus. Let's not forget the lives that were lost to brought us, bring us the message 
of Jesus. Here in Luke, we know that there is at least one generation between his belief and the one before him. But have you ever taken the time to really think about all the generations since Jesus walked this earth that lead to you sitting here today? The faithfulness of that eyewitness testimony is a testimony to your salvation, to your belief. The grand arc of God's story, all of history, the story of redemption, the story of salvation is brought to you today because of people who proclaim the good news to your grandparents, to your great-grandparents, to the people who crossed over on the Mayflower, right? All these people, generationally, you have a genealogy of faithfulness. These men who were eyewitnesses touched and felt the body of Jesus. They saw him ascend into heaven. They witnessed his resurrected body. And because of their faithfulness, you sit here today. It's because of these generations and generations of people telling about this message of the gospel that you have been saved. Maybe you don't have a family that had a history of knowing the truth of the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you aren't impacted by the testimony that has been told for generations. And here's the rub, though. When we forget about the faithfulness of the people who have gone before us, when we neglect thinking about the reality that people laid down their lives for the gospel message, we get comfortable and we get complacent and we think that we don't need to tell the next person about the good news of Jesus. We don't see the importance of proclaiming the gospel message. We don't see the power of God in all of history. We can look at our friends and our neighbors and think that they don't deserve or won't respond to the gospel. We cannot and must not sit back and think someone else will do it, that someone else will proclaim the gospel. We need to be responsible as individuals to go and tell people about the good news of Jesus. We need to pass it on. We need to proclaim to our kids and to our grandkids and to our friends and to our family and to our neighbors the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone so that they may come to faith. We need to be a witness of the good news of Jesus just like those who handed this tradition down to Luke and Theophilus, you understand that the Christian message began with a small group of people. A small group of people impacted the whole world with this message of redemption. And sometimes we think that we are so insignificant that we can't do that. But I tell you what, if we as a church took upon ourselves the mission of Christ to go and proclaim the good news, I promise you we could have an impact on this community, on this county, and on the world. Just like those first disciples who lived in a nobody town in the middle of nowhere became the proclaimers of the good news of Jesus. Don't think that your witness is too small. Now, we aren't eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, but we are eyewitnesses to the transformation that he brings. We are eyewitnesses to his goodness, to his grace, and to his peace. We are eyewitnesses to his saving power. We have witnessed that God can and does change the lives of those who believe. So we do have a story to tell. We have a good news to tell to all people. And like Luke, our stories will be different from person to person. But that doesn't mean that it isn't worth telling. Our faith is personal, but it's not private. We should share the good news of Jesus to those who we know so that they may come to believe. And we tell them about the glory of Jesus because that's what life is all about. 
The chief end of man is to glorify God. That is what we do. Now, because of what Luke and Theophilus have heard through the eyewitness ter- testimony, Luke wants to go out and see this stuff, if, if this stuff is true, if these words are true. So he wants to investigate the claims of these eyewitnesses. He wants to test what he's been taught. And so in Luke, uh, in verse 3, we see this. So it seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the first, to write to you an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus. So Luke becomes an investigator. And I love I love Luke. Luke listened to those who told him about Jesus, and he's like, you know what? I need to go out and find out for myself if this stuff is true. I need to hear the stories from the eyewitnesses himself, and I'm going to record what I learned. Luke acts like this investigative journalist, and he goes out and he tries to just get the facts. He's following after the leads. He's going out and interviewing people concerning the life of Jesus, and he's doing this because Theophilus wants to know too. Not only is Luke curious about the things that he's been taught, but so is this Theophilus guy. So who is Theophilus? Well, the truth is we don't really know. Um, we do know that Luke and Acts are both addressed to him. So we, we believe that, that he is, a, a like I said earlier, person of great wealth and influence. He most likely funded Luke's research, providing him the means to travel and compile the information that we find in the New Testament in Luke's gospel and the book of Acts. But we do know just a little bit about him, that he was a follower of Jesus, that he had learned, that he had studied, that he had been taught the things about Jesus. Now, when you read that, what Luke does is he goes out and he investigates the truth claims about Jesus. What does this mean? He means he studied, he interviewed, he wanted to get the information, and he wanted to compile it so that it could be understood. He's not just recording the facts, but he wants people to understand. I think about it in high, like when I was in high school and college and many of you too were, when, when we were given an assignment to do like a research paper, and what did you do? You go to the sources, right? And you read what others say about the information and you gather that information and then you compose a paper. I wrote a lot of papers in school, so I mean, maybe you didn't, but it was, it was a intense process of getting all the information and compiling it together. And so that's what Luke does. He goes and he gets all the information. He writes about what he gathered. He wa- writes about the interviews. Luke is going, is through, throughout his own writing, he's recording truthful events, historical records, both about dates and rulers. And he wants the reader to get, again understand the events of Jesus' life that are not rooted in mythology, but in reality. So you'll see throughout both Luke and Acts that he refers to people in power, that he refers to people ruling. These are real people at real points in time. Because he wants to, un- us to understand that it's truthful, that it actually happened. And while he's doing this, he's adding his own spin and character to the narrative. This doesn't distract from the fact that it's all true, but it's like that diamond that we talked about earlier, that he presents Jesus in a way that's receptive to the audience that he's, he's reaching out to. That means that as Luke is writing his account, he's telling the story of Jesus' life, choosing the parts that fit with the story that he's telling. Remember, John tells us that there was so much record. If, they, if we recorded everything about Jesus, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. So they can't record everything. So they pick and choose, these gospel authors do, the things that they want to include to convey the message that they're trying to convey. During this process, he's guided by the Holy Spirit and, again, adds the texture, the complexity, and the beauty of Jesus' life and ministry. Luke tells Theophilus that he is writing an orderly sequence or account of the life of Jesus. But when Luke talks about the gospel being orderly, he doesn't necessarily mean the same thing that we might mean. 
right? When you think orderly, you think A, B, C, D, E, right? Chronological is usually how we think about orderly. But instead, Luke, the way that he writes his gospel is more of a logical way. Again, appealing to the wisdom of the Greeks. He's, he's more focused on logical rather than chronological. Luke's argument is to help Theophilus have certainty about the things that he has taught. So he's creating an argument for the life of Jesus. So Luke wants to present his gospel in a way that helps aid his purpose. So the way that he does that is he organizes the gospel in a pretty easy way to decipher. And I, I've got a few slides that I want you guys to follow along, okay? So Luke chapter 1, verses 4 through 13, uh, Luke chapter 1 through chapter 4, verse 13, is kind of a prologue of the gospel of Luke, okay? This includes the birth narratives of both John and Jesus, Drawing the connection between John being the last prophet of the Old Testament or the, of the law in the New Test, of Old Testament before the covenant of grace steps on the scene in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's again, these are broad categories. Luke chapter one through verse or through four thirteen, and then the next one, the next section is Luke chapter four verses fourteen through nine fifty. Okay, this is the early ministry of Jesus. Mostly takes place in Galilee and. If you want to categorize this, it's miracles, 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 okay? Most of the ministry of Jesus takes place in the geographic area of Galilee in this place and highlights the miracles of Jesus. Though there are miracles throughout the gospel, it's overwhelming. The overwhelming concentration is found here in these first five chapters of Luke 4, 14 through 950. Then the next section is Luke 951 through 1927. And this is Jesus' later Judean ministry. The focus here is mostly on teaching of Jesus and his journey to Jerusalem. This is where most of the parables are told. So in Luke chapter uh, 4, 14 through 950, it's miracles, miracles, miracles. And in Luke 951 through 1927, it's parables, parables, parables. And then in chapter 1928 through 2449, this is Jesus in Jerusalem. The focus here is on his trial and on his sacrifice, and on his resurrection. The greatest sacrifice and the greatest miracle happen in this section. The big chunk of text in the middle of Luke from chapter 4, verse 14 through 1927 is a joint measure. This, this section is both the mighty works of miracles and the words of teachings of Jesus. This is why Luke can pen in, cha- in chapter 24, verse 19, you read this, what things he asked them. So they said to him, things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, who was a powerful prophet prophet in action and speech before God and people. So, so Luke is really wanting the readers of his gospel to see both the works of Jesus and the words of Jesus. So the miracles of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. And that's what he does in his gospel. This was part of Luke's overarching theme in his gospel, the works and words of Jesus. By proving that Jesus was a powerful teacher of wisdom and a powerful worker of ministry, it proves that Jesus is who he said he is and is backed by what he did. Why would Luke want to include this in his gospel account? 
though he was writing to for a Greek audience, he wanted to take account and appeal to a wider audience as well as well. And Paul addresses not Luke specifically, but the, the culture at the time in first Corinthians chapter one, verse 22, he says this for the Jews ask for signs. So the miracles of Jesus and the Greeks seek the wisdom that is the teachings of Jesus. And Luke here does both of those. So his spending time with Paul on the ministry journey on his missionary journey really helps him to, to compile this so that the, the Jews see the signs and the miracles of Jesus and the Greeks see the wisdom and the teachings of Jesus. This is what Luke does. He, he ties them together for both the Jews and the Greeks, the miracles and the wisdom. And he wants to appeal to the widest audience. Another, another major theme of this investigative report is the perfect humanity of Jesus. You see, in Luke's gospel, we get the fullest picture of Jesus's birth, his childhood, a little glimpse at his childhood, and his social life. Right Of all the Gospels, we read about the extensive birth account in Luke 2. We read about the interaction of a, a preteen Jesus in Luke at the end of chapter 2 as well when he, his family leaves him at the temple. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Uh, Luke also includes an extensive genealogy of Jesus that concludes not with Abraham, like Matthew's does, but concludes with this phrase in verse 38 of chapter 3. Son of Adam, son of God. Luke wants a reader of his account to know that the birth of Jesus is both the son of Adam and the son of God, demonstrating that Jesus isn't just for the Jewish people, but in fact that he is for all people who would believe, both Jew and Gentile. He is the truest and best human to ever live because he is both truly God and truly man. So Luke isn't just concerned about telling the story of Jesus. He's also building a theology around Jesus in his ministry. Because Luke understands that though the story of Jesus and his ministry is important, it doesn't really amount to anything if it isn't rooted in the divine work of God. Jesus' story would be good, but it's great because he is the son of God. And to close out the introduction, we read in verse 4, so that you may know with certainty the things about which you have been instructed. Theophilus had been taught and told about the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He has heard the news about his, this divine man who came down to earth. He has heard the stories about the miracles and his teachings. We don't know who, who told him these things, but potentially somebody he was related to. But he has been instructed in this way. And maybe he has a lot of questions. Maybe Theophilus has a lot of questions. Maybe he believes and he is struggling. Luke here wants us to know that we can be certain about the life in ministry of Jesus. We can be certain that he fulfilled the Old Testament. We can be certain that the events of Christian orthodoxy are rooted in history, that Jesus actually taught these truths, that Jesus actually healed the lame, healed the blind, made the sick well, fixed the broken, that Jesus actually had compassion on the outcasts, the poor, and the low in spirit. That Jesus was innocent, yet he was put to death. That he was treated as a criminal, though he was righteous. That he died and was buried. And that after he died and was buried, he rose again. He spent time with his disciples. And he, he, he wasn't just a ghost, right? Because he, he ate with them and they felt his body. That Jesus actually bodily rose again. And Luke wants us to know, that he did all of this, he did all this work so that we would be certain. He interviewed people. He talked to Mary. 
He spoke with the apostles. He traveled with Paul. He investigated the claims about Jesus that are found in the teachings of Jesus and found that they were true. And thankfully, 2,000 years ago, he wrote them down. And we are now beneficiaries of his hard work. We get to read these accounts about Jesus. We get to read about his love and compassion, his teachings and authority. We get to study Jesus Christ, the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. Now, I don't know where you are this morning, but I want you to be certain that the things about Jesus are true. Luke didn't conspire to fool Theophilus. He wanted to present the truth, and he has. And through the providence of the Lord, we get to read the same scriptures. We get to read these same stories. Now, you may be a natural skeptic, and I want you to know that Jesus is real that he really lived, that he really died, and that his followers really did believe they saw him risen from the grave. They believed so much that they died for their belief of what they claimed they saw. And that for generations, Jesus has been changing lives. Now you may be a believer, but you're struggling. And I want to encourage you to read this gospel. I want you to see the length that Jesus went through so that he could demonstrate his love for those who would believe. I want you to be comfortable knowing that you don't have to have all the answers. You can still have questions. You can still struggle and Jesus will still be there. Like Luke, if you feel like an outsider, if you feel abandoned by your family, by your friends, by your, by the world, know that Jesus loves you deeply, that he knows you fully and that there, that he is there to comfort you. And he is where true rest lies. You see, he came to save people just like you. He came to mend broken hearts. He came to seek and save the lost. He came, he lived, and he died, and he rose again to restore us back into a relationship with the holy God of the universe. And he's coming back to rule and reign forever and ever. Amen.